Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Out in a fishing boat, empty and exhausted, Peter discovered the wonder of God's second chance. One day Jesus used his boat as a platform. The crowd on the beach was so great that Jesus needed a buffer, so he preached from Peter's boat. Then he told Peter to take him fishing. The apostle-to-be had no interest. He was tired. He had fished all night. He was discouraged. He had caught nothing. He was dubious. What did Jesus know about catching fish? Peter was self-conscious. People packed the beach. Who wants to fail in public? But Jesus insisted, and Peter relented. At your word, I will let down the net. This was a moment of truth for Peter. He was saying, I will try again your way. When he did, the catch of fish was so great the boat nearly sank. Sometimes we just need to try again with Christ in the boat. In the Archbishop's Corner is the best place to get the encouragement to try again. And Archbishop Blair is the best person to provide that encouragement based on faith rooted and grounded in the words of Jesus, let's go fishing. Failures are fatal only if we fail to learn from them. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Today is the great solemnity of the body and blood of Christ, also known as Corpus Christi. This feast honors the real presence of Jesus Christ under the appearances of bread and wine. Talk for a moment about the significance of this day and the general perception of Catholics regarding the Eucharist today. Well, the gift of Christ's self to us of his body and blood in the Holy Eucharist is really at the very heart of Christianity. It's the heart of the gospel because in establishing the sacraments, Christ came not just to give us a moral teaching. Uh, Christ did not just come as a personage of history. He didn't even come just as a personage who is risen from the dead and in heaven and is, is God. But he came to give us a share in divine life in his own divine life. And I think we all know, and you think of St. Paul and what he wrote, that we are we are the body of Christ, that in a mystical manner, we, by our baptism, actually become part of Christ's risen body. That we are, to use the name Christopher, which means we are Christ-bearers, and we actually share in this divine life. And if you look at the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John and the teachings of St. Paul, you see how this is articulated, this great mystery of uh, our rebirth in the, Holy, in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to be members of his body. Well, Christianity then is not just about doctrines. It's not about believing things in a book, as true as those things are. And the fact that, yes, faith is required in the truth of what is asserted, the truth of what Jesus said, the truth of the scriptures, the truth of what these things mean as uh, authoritatively taught by the church through the ages. But ultimately, it's about receiving the body and blood of Christ into our very selves. 
and that is the great mystery of the Holy Eucharist that we celebrate on this solemnity. Do you think that most Catholics believe that this bread, this wine, actually becomes the body and the blood of Christ, or believe that, it, like many Protestants, this symbolizes the body and blood of Christ? Well, we could get into a long—I uh, could make a commentary on that, all that's been talked about, written about in that regard. I think that throughout history, from the beginning until now, the Church's affirmation, articulation, and, and clarification through the centuries of the depth and meaning of this belief, of this doctrine, has, is, is there for us to, to see and to hear and to take to heart. But uh, over time, there are all kinds of believers. There are all kinds of people at different levels, stages of understanding, of knowledge, of, of devotional life, etc. I, I think anybody that is, uh, has been catechized as a Roman Catholic certainly knows the teaching of the Church in its basic form. Anybody who goes to Mass and actually listens to the prayers of the Eucharistic prayer uh, or hears the words of the Gospel— will know what is asserted is that this is truly the body and blood of Christ. Now, for understanding that mystery, however, that can only come through prayer. That can only come through reception of the Holy Eucharist in a manner that truly takes to heart what is being presented, what is being offered, and that prayerfully reflects on it and and asks for the grace of understanding. So I think to answer your question— Today, the, the, the opinion polls uh, suggest that a number of Catholics uh, do not uh, fully understand or, or accept the, the, the understanding of the Eucharist as, as the Church has, has taught it. But you have to remember, too, uh, there are all kinds of Catholics. There are some who might answer a survey like that who never go to church anymore. There are some who may never have been catechized. And so among those who go to church— the figure is better. But there, too, it's a matter of not just knowledge. It's not just a matter of studying the catechism and uh, reading it in a book, but it is about deepening and confirming one's faith by prayer and practice. The only way that we can really grow in these mysteries of faith is by praying uh, and by coming to them with a certain humility of mind and heart to receive what God is prepared to give. And the capacities of different people are different, you know. Their intellectual capacities to understand theological concepts, their devotional capacities for, for prayer, etc. And uh, in God's eyes, the most simple person is of equal value to the most learned. But in the end, it's a matter of accepting the reality of Christ's words, because that's really what it's about. It's not the Church just saying this, but especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus says things that are so stark and, compl- and and total, that you cannot dispute them. I mean, even at the time, the people who walked away because they thought Jesus was talking about cannibalism, Jesus didn't run after him and say, oh, you didn't understand. I, I meant it as a symbol. He let them walk away and he even said to the apostles, are you going to walk away too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom will we, ha- will we go? You have the words of everlasting life. So the starkness of Eucharistic reality is very clear in the scriptures. And uh, it's very clear from the very beginning in the whole life of the church. So we bishops in the United States want to make a real effort to deepen our people's understanding 
and not only understanding but practice and uh, uh, spiritual attachment to the reality of Corpus Christi, that is to say of the body and blood, uh, Corpus et sanguinis, uh, sanguis, I, my Latin is getting rusty, uh, 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 Christi, the body and blood of Christ. Today is also the 36th anniversary of President Reagan's famous tear down this wall speech as he challenged Soviet President Gorbachev to open up the Eastern Bloc. This was considered to be one of the most powerful speeches of his career. Any thoughts to share? You're a big history buff, so... Well, I've always had a great interest in history. What, what is the exact date? Do you have it there? Uh, 36 years ago, back in 1987, is when he said, tear down this wall. In 1987, when I believe these words were spoken... I was actually beginning my service in Rome in the Secretariat of State at the Vatican in the English language section. And I do remember that this was a very uh, interesting time, you can imagine, uh, when all of these tremendous uh, changes were happening in Europe where the communist uh, system of the uh, USSR was collapsing. I can remember going at Christmas, we had a Christmas break from work, mm -hmm. going up to Paris to celebrate the Midnight Mass at Notre Dame Cathedral. And I remember the people there with candles lit from Romania who were at that time trying to, to, to get the, uh, the Romanian dictator out because communism was falling there. I remember Mr. Gorbachev and his wife coming to Rome for a visit and coming to visit Pope John Paul at the Vatican. And so this, these kinds of speeches and about tearing the wall down and everything, this was really just a tremendous thing that was happening in Europe at that time uh, and for the world, uh, very exciting and promising. And, of course, now in the throes of what's going on in Ukraine, we see how all those hopes for a peaceful Russia have been dashed by current events but nevertheless, that was a tremendous thing. I can remember visiting Berlin when the wall was still up and going over there for the day for a little sightseeing was like visiting a prison camp. There were these booths everywhere with, with one-way glass so that guards could watch everybody. Uh, I never felt so happy to get back to West Berlin at the end of the day uh, where you felt free. You know, it was also a time of, of change for the people of, of Poland and so many other places. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's, it's good news and bad news. The good news is that these things can happen, that good can happen through the perseverance uh, of, of, of good people. But also the bad news is we see now what's happened in Russia, how if you're not vigilant and if you don't, if you don't uh, keep on top of these things, how things can easily go awry in a sinful world. That's a terrible, terrible shame, you know. It would be a shame if we went back in history to the time before the wall was torn down to the way it was when that wall existed between both East and West Berlin. Well, there are always walls. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, so maybe times have changed, but look now with communist China, you know, mm -hmm. and so many other places where ideologies uh, always are there to try to usurp and dominate and we have to be very careful. And I don't, I'm, I'm beginning to worry sometimes that we, the American people, are beginning to take our solidarity as a people for granted. And it's beginning to fray. There are signs of fractures that are very, very, very troubling uh, because 
you know, that, that uh, statement, united we stand, and that has to be uh, the, 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 the national focus, that obviously there can be differences of opinion, even very serious differences, but ultimately we have to be united. Uh, when ideologies take over and there's no room for any kind of compromise uh, where it's a power struggle uh, with only victors and losers, that is a very dangerous situation. And uh, I'm not saying we're there uh, at the moment, but there are signs that we need to rededicate ourselves to some fundamentals about uh, democracy and, and liberty. On Tuesday, we celebrate the feast of one of the Catholic Church's most popular saints, St. Anthony of Padua. He is the patron saint of the poor, travelers, and lost items. The gospel calls us to leave everything and follow Christ, was the rule of St. Anthony of Padua's life. Over and over and again, God called him to something new in his plan, and every time Anthony responded with enthusiasm. Other than St. Joseph and the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Anthony is the saint who is most often depicted with statues or images holding the child Jesus. Do you have any comment regarding St. Anthony? Well, yes, and of course I think we've talked about this before. That uh, The funny thing is St. Anthony is Portuguese, but he he was active in, in, and died in Italy, and so his great shrine up there in Padua, St. Anthony of Padua, but he's originally Portuguese, and that's wonderful because it shows the universality of the church and the fact that, uh, you know, these uh, divisions or distinctions in the eyes of God are not important. What's important is to be one family of faith. Yeah, have you ever prayed to St. Anthony when you've lost something or couldn't find something? Oh, I'm sure I have. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that makes him an extremely popular saint. And usually he does come around, and we do find what we're looking for. Thursday is the observance of World Elder Abuse Awareness Day, a day for the whole world to voice its opposition to the abuse and suffering inflicted on some of our older citizens. Archbishop, do you think that elder abuse is very common in our society today? Well, I leave it to others who study and measure these things to give a a really uh, informed answer to that question. But I would certainly say that uh, the Church talks about protecting the most vulnerable. Uh, And the most vulnerable in particular include people, uh, little uh, unborn children or infants, um, and also at the end of life uh, when people are vulnerable. So there are many dedicated good people uh, who are, are concerned about both ends of that of that span of life. Uh, and, uh, you know, elderly people uh, can be taken advantage of or abused in a number of ways. One can be uh, physical or the treatment they receive that might be inadequate, but also taking advantage of their uh, diminished capacity uh, to m- encourage them to do things or, 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 or do things for or from them that, that really are taking advantage. And that's, that's not good at all. Of course, it's, but we also know that there are many, many dedicated people, many dedicated families who, who take good care of their elderly members. Archbishop, let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this solemnity of the body and blood of Christ, also known as Corpus Christi, the 11th of June. Now, today's gospel is from John's gospel, the sixth chapter. After the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you and ask for your thoughts. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world 
is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Archbishop, I'm sure the way you hear this gospel today is much different from the way the original Jewish crowd heard it when Jesus first spoke these words. Your thoughts? Well, I think I've already adverted to this gospel a few minutes ago when we, when we talked about uh, the celebration of this solemnity of Corpus Christi. But this gospel, John chapter 6, actually is quite lengthy. Our yeah. Lord repeats this over and over again in different ways. But this particular gospel uh, certainly highlights what I was saying earlier, that our Lord is very clear uh, about uh, what the reality of the gift of himself, of his own flesh and blood, uh, to those who believe. You know, Jesus says, uh, whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. And they said, how can this be? And Jesus just insists, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true, true drink. This is a great mystery, and it also is our lifeline uh, to eternity. And so we need to take it to heart and seek to understand uh, ever more deeply spiritually what it is, prepare ourselves to receive it worthily. It takes faith to truly understand and appreciate the significance of this gospel. Is that right? Well, everything connected with our Lord takes faith, but but this especially because it's a great it's a great mystery. Let's look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners then. Colleen from Torrington says, Can you explain to me why a special celebration is needed for Corpus Christi when we actually honor the presence of the Son of God during the Eucharist at each Mass? Well, I think we do it to revive, refresh, and renew a profession of faith in the real presence of Christ that we celebrate at every Mass. We always believe that Christ uh, was born into this world, uh, but we celebrate Christmas. We believe that Christ rose from the dead, uh, and that's true all the time. It's at the heart of our faith, uh, but we celebrate Easter. So similarly, we do the same thing for for, uh, our belief in the Eucharist on Corpus Christi. Greg from Avon says, I believe that God always was, but what about Jesus? Was Jesus in existence before his birth, and did the Holy Spirit first come into being at Pentecost? Well, Jesus, uh, to the great scandal of those who heard him, said, before Abraham was, I am. And, of course, Abraham had lived centuries before Christ was born in this world. And he used the expression that caused utter 
consternation to those who heard him. He said, I am. And that is how God identified himself to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, I am. I am who I am. You know, Moses asked, what is your name? What name shall I tell the people that you have? And the the answer from the burning bush was simply, I tell the people, I am. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, well, this was uh, part of the terrific scandal that was considered blasphemous that contributed to the path to Christ's uh, crucifixion. Remember the trial of Jesus uh, before the high priest uh, on Holy Thursday night, where the priest rent his garment because Jesus made such claims. So Jesus very definitely uh, proclaims his preexistence. And similarly, the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, again, the, the Trinity, uh, the, the mystery of the Holy Trinity was only revealed by Christ. Uh, and so uh, the same thing could be said regarding the Holy Spirit. Marie from East Haven says, I see many men and women wearing inappropriate clothing and shoes at Mass each week. Shouldn't we dress nicely while visiting God in his house? Also, parishioners socialize, laughing and talking loudly, while others are trying to pray prior to Mass. I do not consider myself old-fashioned, but I go to Mass to interact with God. These distractions may seem small, but to me they take away from the dignity that should prevail at the Eucharist. Though I try to rise above these things and look for the goodness of the celebration, I still leave church feeling disappointed. Can we please begin to restore reverence at Mass? Are there any rules for proper etiquette at church? Well, Maria, I share your frustration, but uh, even as a bishop, I don't know what can be done when you have deconstructed, as it were, all of the traditional forms of reverence and um, recollection uh, in church. Um, now, I don't know, Marie, how old you are. I'm in my 70s, and I, I, I witnessed the transition between a time when people came reverently to church, there was no talking in church, and where people, but of course that wasn't just church, they had a sense of dressing properly for most occasions in life. All of that has been deconstructed, if I can use that word, and I've seen it. And once the toothpaste out of the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's very hard to get it back in. Sure. There are many people today who would be very offended because of the kind of society in which we live if you told them, you know, it's really not proper to come to communion in shorts and flip-flops on Easter Sunday. They would say, who are you to tell me, you know, that I can do whatever I want? Or to tell people that really... In church before Mass, uh, in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, it should be a time of silent prayer. And after Mass, as people leave, they can certainly socialize with and gather with one another. So I experienced the same thing, but I'm afraid that right now, in an individual situation, if it's possible to do something like that, then I say do it. And it depends on parishes, too. Some uh, churches still retain some of the more traditional uh, uh, attitudes coming into church, and others do not. Uh, so I'm sorry, Marie, I'm not giving you a very good answer, but I think it begins with each of us that, uh, by good example, uh, you know, you're giving a good example to people, and you should pray for them when you're there, maybe they, that, that they will come to appreciate the need to, for a greater reverence and respect. Do you think it helps or hurts if the pastor talks about decorum at Mass? For instance, 
Oh, today, what do you mean by decorum? You know, not only what they dress, but being polite to one another, uh, being welcoming, um, using oh, well, the time. Oh, you can talk about those things, but, using, but when you come to using, dress and and be and and being quiet and all that, uh, you can't issue a general rule you, uh, of how a priest can handle this. I think a priest in a parish will try, uh, to, uh, can try to do something in a nice way with with the people. Maybe add a little humor, humorous touch to it, to get across a, a very important point. Anyway, let's move on to Paul's question. Paul is from Shelton and says, In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, we read that Paul exhorted men to pray in church while lifting holy hands. What's the connection between lifted hands and holiness? And what about lifted hands and prayer? Is this practice culturally dated, or is it a relevant one that we should adopt today in church? Well, I suppose these things change over time, but a lot of the traditional things of Scripture are retained. When I say Mass, my hands are extended in the so-called Oran's position. The Jewish people still preserve many of the traditional forms of prayer. And I think, you know, our bodily gestures and how we hold ourselves and how we comport ourselves when we pray uh, is important. And, I mean, not that you can't pray at any time, but especially publicly, um, so yes, lifted hands uh, are symbolic of raising your your heart and mind and soul to God, and uh, and as I say, in our formal prayers in the church in the in the Eucharist, we we still have our hands extended. And sometimes there are people that also extend their hands. I've noticed that perfectly fine. Yes, Sally from Norfolk says in a recent general audience, Pope Francis urged Catholics to live what they teach and preach. The Pope said that what attracts people to the gospel is seeing consistency in the way Christians live. He also admonished people who, he says, pretend to be Christians while living a worldly life. How can I be sure I am living as a Catholic should? Well, Sally, it's the examination of conscience that each and every one of us needs to to do. And uh, I think, you know, people going on retreat from time to time, taking some uh, time to reflect on their lives in a more extended way is certainly a very good way to, not to beat ourselves up uh, uh, or to become uh, scrupulous, but to say, where is my life headed and how do I give example? How do What, what are my priorities in life? When I compare my priorities and my the gift of my time and talent uh, to, to what I read in the gospel or what I know from my Catholic faith. And so a little bit of soul-searching like that and sometimes a great deal of soul-searching in certain instances is very important. Let's look at Joe's question, and Joe's from Granby. He says, I've always been strongly pro-life, but given the horrendous nature of some crimes, it always seemed to me that the death penalty is called for in the most extreme cases. Help me to understand why Pope Francis has changed the catechism on this issue. Well, Joe, first of all, you stated correctly the, the wording in the catechism has been altered, first by Pope John Paul and now by Pope Francis, but it does not say that the death penalty is intrinsically evil. That is to say that in every single circumstance where it would be applied, that it has to be a moral evil. What the popes have said is that it is unnecessary to protect society because the only justification, moral justification, for capital punishment is to protect society. Now, you could argue that uh, pr- that deterrence is necessary to protect society. 
But I think uh, that uh, in in modern times, the popes have said, and I think there's a general sentiment for this, which I, I which I also subscribe to, is that uh, it uh, you can protect society without applying the death penalty. Uh, in the modern penal system and everything else, people can be protected from from those kind of criminals without putting them to death. Just to, to summarize, it's not intrinsically evil, but in today's society, in order pr- to protect society, it is not uh, absolutely required. It's not necessary. That's the point. It's not really necessary to protect society. And if we're talking about deterrence, isn't life in prison almost as much of a deterrence as capital punishment? I should think it would be, yes. Yeah. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you uh, close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, on this uh, Corpus Christi Sunday, we rejoice and give thanks for the gift of yourself, which you have made to us out of love, by making your death and resurrection present to us and making it our very food and drink in the gift of the Holy Eucharist. We ask for a great renewal of faith in the Blessed Sacrament uh, among our Catholic people and uh, a greater awareness uh, on the part of all of us of the uh, great depths uh, of this uh, sacrament to us, of all that it means, and of the worship and praise that we uh, should give to you uh, in the presence of this Holy Eucharist, which we also receive as our food and drink And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week at the same time. Until then, enjoy this week. You too. Thank you. Thank you.